Welcome to the Brisbane Property Podcast with your hosts, Melinda and Scott Jennison from Streamline Property Buyers, your local Brisbane property specialists. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Brisbane Property Podcast. Um, today we've got a, uh, a special guest with us. Um, we've had Mike on before, so we've got Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors. Welcome Mike. Thank you and thanks for having me back. I really wasn't sure whether I'd get another return invite, but I'm jazzed up and ready to go. Good, good. You're always welcome to join us for a chat. And as I said probably last time, and I'll say it again this time, I've, I'm going to be surrounded by data nerds here, so I probably won't get a lot of say in this podcast, but I'm sure there's, a, and I know that there's a lot of really interesting information that's going to come forward to um, to the listeners today. Yes, welcome back, everybody. It's great to um, have Mike um, on the podcast once again. I think last time we took a deep dive, Mike, into depreciation and depreciation schedules and helped our listeners understand, you know, what sort of depreciation benefits people might have on their properties and what might be specific to Brisbane properties. Today, we're going to take a slightly different angle because um, your firm, MCG Quantity Surveyors, has been involved in a long-term study called the 1000 Assets Report. Can you help listeners understand what it is that this study um, captures in terms of data and, you know, what this tells us as property investors? Yeah, look, it, it started out basically at the beginning of our business, I, I saw a problem with my industry, especially in the tax depreciation space where uh, quantity surveying firms were saying, on average, we get between five and $10,000 worth of deductions. And I first thought, well, that's not an average. And secondly, just tell us the, what the actual figure is. So I remember we published that as 9,183 um, to two decimal places, which I forget, unfortunately, <laughs> sure that we were really paying attention. And then it kind of expanded from, from there. The, the data that we collect is really data that we uh, we need to maximise the deductions for the client. So some quite specific things like have you occupied the property because you can't claim depreciation while it's your principal place of residence. So if you just think about that, we know when they purchased the property, we know if they occupied it, and if they occupied it, we know when we move, they moved out. So we've been able to share bits of data like 25% of people actually occupy their property prior to renting it out. That's actually dropped to uh, about 20% of people. And we can see the number of days that they occupy that. So there's all sorts of stats around the floor area of properties, what people are paying for houses versus units, the renovations that they're spending. So we kind of really wanted to unleash that on the world because we see a lot of that data is not being collected by anybody else. And what I love about this study also, Mike, and, and you shared a lot of the raw data with me, and thank you for that because um, I think you and I both know I love getting my head in data when I do get the chance to do so. And what's really interesting is that you've got the ability to track long-term trends. So, um, you know, from my understanding, this this study's been or you've been collecting this data since um, what year? When did it start? Yeah, so, so we, we, we started the business in 2011, but it's really a, a seven-year data set. So we look at 1,000 residential transactions every single year and we sort of keep it at that exact amount. Um, and we've got seven years' worth of data to look at. And it's just amazing to see, you know, bits and pieces of data come up and down. You know, units might be popular as a, as a purchase type compared to houses and then they come back and... 
you know, I find it interesting, and I just, I just hope and pray that there's other people as as weird as as me, or as weird as you and I, perhaps I should say. <laughs> but now I'm not that weird, Mike. But I I do find it really interesting. Like Melinda and I have sat down and gone through all of this information that you've shared with us, and it's really interesting to see how you've broken up and your explanation just then. When I'm looking at what we've we're looking at here, it really does um, simplify it for us to, to understand what you talk about for things like percentage of you know people that live in the properties, what work they do, and, and the type of product as well. So you've got seven years of data that you can actually compare long-term trends, but you've also got this cross-sectional data um, whereby you can have a look at what's happening in different states um, at different points in time. And and that's what I um, am most interested in taking that deep dive into today because there are some obvious differences that I can see within the information that you collect in terms of what's happening here in Queensland versus what New South Wales and Victorian investors might do. And you mentioned one of the the key, um, I guess, long-term findings or long-term trends that have be- has become apparent, and that is that, you know, one in five investors lived in their assets before renting it out, and that's now dropped to one in four. But based on the information that you've shared with us, it's quite different here in Queensland. And in fact, um, you've got some groundbreaking data that you, you're going to be talking about for the first time on today's post, uh, podcast, and that is in relation to the local government area of Brisbane. Um, and in Queensland as a whole and in the Brisbane LGA, the percentage of people that have lived in a property previously is much lower, um, 9.68% over Queensland and 13% in Brisbane. It's mm. fascinating when you're talking about um, around 20 to 25% in other states. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, we, we've we've been running this for a little while, and and we sort of coined it as as accidental investors, right? So mm. people that live in their property prior to turning it into a rental property. Now, sometimes people will say to me, "Well, that's just strategic. They could be first home buyers. They've got to live in it for for six months to get the the grant." And I said, "Well." That, that definitely would play a part in the data, but when the average amount of time that people are occupying the property is four years, there's more to that story. And that the first time we crunched it, that was what the figures were telling us. So what we expected was that there was a certain cohort of people that are looking to perhaps upgrade their principal place of residence. And then the broker might say to them, you know, you, you don't actually have to sell your property to buy this next property. And then they become accidental investors. And Accidental investors worry me a little bit, and I'm sure that you would agree here, is that any time that you're investing in property, whether you're buying something or you're turning something into an investment, you kind of want to have a strategy to it. You don't want it to be accidental. So are these people aware about tax depreciation deductions is a key thing. Is that the best property for them to have an investment? Yes, it's easy to just hold on to it, but there's, there's, you know, there's a, there's a cost that to, to perhaps not selling that property and investing in a better growth location, for example. So that accidental investor one has always been interesting to me. Yeah, and it's interesting that um, there's a lot more accidental investors, as you describe them, um, in New South Wales and also in Victoria, um, whereas in Queensland, fewer. So that tells me that people that do invest in Queensland are doing so with intent 
purely to purchase an investment property. And, and that also could come from the fact that a lot of people that are priced out of the likes of New South Wales in Victoria may be renting um, a property there, but investing um, interstate. And that also speaks to the data in terms of a potential reason as to why we're seeing that as a trend. Yeah, um, yeah. Another thing that I find is really interesting is the number of people that um, are buying new assets. Now, um, I know that the data sets that you've been collecting over the years has shown there has been a reduction in investors buying new assets yeah, um, yeah. and that the percentage previously in 2016 was around 24% of all investors were buying brand new. This is, this is across all of the data. Um, that's now sitting at, at 16%. But in fact, the um, data for Queensland is showing only 7% um, or between 7 and 8% of properties being purchased for investment are brand new. So, mm. again, it tells a story about the type of product that people are looking for in each state. That's a real interesting one for me. And if you think about it across the country, that that actually peaked at 49.6% in 2019. Wow. So almost half of investment properties were brand new. I mean, that was, that was I actually kind of found that quite disturbing, right? Wow. Not to say that new properties are a bad investment or they can't be a good investment, but that is where spruikers live. You don't mm. get property spruikers in the established market because there's no money to be made, whereas you do get, you know, networks of people flogging off the plan apartments because there's clips to be made, right? So that was a little bit of a concern. And, yes, I think price point has to tell a little bit of the story in Brisbane as well, right? Because purchased an, an established property would often be more expensive than perhaps buying a, a new unit off the plan, in, certainly in places like Sydney. But you can buy established houses in, in Brisbane. I mean, the median house prices were around 800000 last time I checked, you know, mm. over a million dollars in places like Canberra, right? So Brisbane did have a real value property. Prop, uh, proposition and I think it you know still does to some extent it's interesting when you talk about that Mike and we we obviously talked about the percentage of people and obviously Brisbane being more affordable the investors um, coming into the market up this way we have talked um, now for quite a while I can't remember which episode it was but we started to talk about keep an eye on the unit market um, units townhouses up here in Brisbane because they are more affordable and you get close to the CBD the information that you've provided here does make us really think about that and we put a big question mark on it thinking, wow, that's that's amazing information in that the houses and the unit prices and the unit price is actually considerably higher um, in Queensland. Yeah. So when we're looking, yeah, we're looking at the, the data for, for all of Queensland and for investors um, over the most recent period um, of your study, you've got an average purchase price for investors buying in Queensland of 720000 and yet an average purchase price for units of 898000 So investors are spending more money on units um, than they are on houses based on this data, which is a, a really interesting trend. Mm. And, I mean, across the board, it, it probably it's safe to say that that's not necessarily true you know, for, for, for the whole market, right? But we're looking at specifically investor markets. But I think what's going on here is that, uh, you know, if you look at even the previous year, it's 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 about 80% less the purchase price that people were paying for units. So 
part of it is the types of units that people were buying. So, you know, the one bedroom apartments were very popular with investors because you had overseas students and you could rent them out. At the beginning of the pandemic, the uh, vacancy rate soared with those types of properties, you know, up around seven, eight percent was not unusual, which is, is crazy to talk about now. Mm. When we're sort of saying, you know, like two percent in a particular market is bad, right, from yeah. an investor point of view, because it's just sort of so tight. But I also think that when the pandemic began, you know, those that had the means to do it um, were looking to places like Queensland because Queensland didn't suffer anywhere near as badly as New South Wales and particularly Victoria. And our data is certainly showing that investors favoured Queensland um, more than any other state. You know, around about 34% of our investors bought into Queensland and it was closer to 11 in Victoria during the pandemic. So these properties, I would assume, are more expensive because people are looking at them as something that they would occupy. So the standards are going to be a lot higher than if they're just looking for something to rent to um, a renter. So potentially people were coming to southeast Queensland, and, and this is all of Queensland data, and potentially they were coming to coastal regions and they were buying their, their you know, luxurious units with ocean views and using it as a getaway to, you know, when they locked down in other states um somewhere that they could come to and, and spend some time in the warm sunny weather and i guess that's consistent with um some of the markets that were the coastal markets performing very strongly in terms of uh, median value growth i know noosa was one of the top performing um you know regions um throughout all of southeast queensland during the pandemic so people were looking for that sea change that lifestyle change and as a result demand soared for those sorts of properties um, and we saw that also escalate prices um, in a low supply environment. So, you know, when I look at the same information, that is the average purchase price for townhouses across Queensland, you know, that drops much, much lower than a unit at 369000 So remember the unit's 898000 So that tells me there that the townhouses that um, investors were buying in Queensland were not the high-end townhouses, but your, your townhouses that were in areas of greater Brisbane potentially, um, you know, where you've got more supply um, yes. and therefore a lower property value. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as much as this is starting to sound like a Queensland tourism uh, <laughs> you, you know, you can see in the, in the data, getting back to the previous point, that uh, people moved from places like Victoria to Queensland permanently. Now, the first thing that I assume a lot of people would be doing is is securing a property and rather than having it sit vacant while they're in lockdown or, you know, they're planning their affairs, they're they're renting it out. So I think there's a fair amount in that. And yeah, as for townhouses, they've become a little bit more of a popular style development than units in some respects that kind of, you know, can be lower time frame, lower risks. And, you know, in a time such as we've had with the pandemic, a lot of people kind of forget that at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't really know exactly what was going to happen. I mean, all of the banks were telling us we were going to have 30% 
house price drops. You know, the household savings ratio went through the roof because people were battening down the hatches. And then, you know, we come on the other side, we don't realise that we realise that it's not that bad. Everyone's blowing money on, you know, caravans and boats. You know, you can see that in the data, renovations, you know, like people have just gone crazy with that extra cash. But there was a time where we were quite concerned. We were worried. Mm. And look, I think that um, everybody went into that pandemic with a level of uncertainty. And I know even investors that we were working with at the time, and in fact, even home buyers that we were working with at the time, you know, everybody was nervous, unsure, because the headlines were um, quite sensationalised, um, as they are at the moment with rising interest rates, I might add. Um, so, you know, it does create a lot of fear and it can impact on consumer confidence. And we all know that, you know, that can also impact on someone's ability to make a decision to to purchase a huge asset like like a house or an investment property. Um, I'd, I'll be really interested, interested to see what next year's information shows, especially around those unit values, because um, that will probably tell us whether that was a post-pandemic shift or, a, a, you know, a during pandemic shift in terms of those people looking for lifestyle um, assets and whether that, that average price for a unit actually drops back down again. Um, you know, because as you mentioned, there's been this huge shift in population and a lot of people couldn't be here. So they've purchased potentially to rent out with the intent to move in the future. So time will tell. And those sorts of trends are the sorts of trends that do emerge as a result of your study. Mm, absolutely. And I think that's a thing that we people might not necessarily realise is so prevalent is that people... Uh, will purchase uh, a property as a bit of a speculative thing. Um, it'll be a rental, but it's like one day I'm going to move into that rather than waiting till the time is right. And, you know, I want to I don't want to move to Queensland in 10 years, buying something in 10 years. They're thinking, well, I'll secure something now and rent it out and then move into it. I think I think that enters into people's strategy a lot more than, than you know, industry people would, would think. And our data seems to be pointing to that. And look, I can also support that through our own inquiry. We do see um, a number of people that have the intent to move in the, to the property in the future, but they're wanting to buy now um, when the market is affordable, um, assuming that property prices will continue to rise in the years ahead. So that's definitely something we see through our own inquiry. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if the data continues to support that. I, Mike, I just want to jump back on the, you um, touched on the renovation side of it when you said people were saving up their money and then going into renovations. Another part of this, which is quite interesting that I look at, is in New South Wales, post-purchase additions is around about 45%. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet in Queensland, it's it's much lower, down around the 27%. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's something we're probably seeing a little bit at the moment as well, out, out and about. The properties that need renovations are not as popular as the ones that are ready to move into. So yep. it's interesting that Queensland, um, New South Wales seems to be a bit of reno capital compared to, um, to compared to Queensland. Yeah, yeah, and there's, I mean, I, I'm speculating in, in many ways and this is where it's great to chat to people like yourselves who are much more on the ground with the, the both the investor and the owner occupiers. But I think we talked a little bit about 
construction costs off air, I think that is really reducing people's appetite to buy fixer-uppers, right? Because they're thinking, I don't know if we can actually get trades to come and do this work. And it might be twice as expensive as it was uh, in the past. It's been a terrible environment um, for for builders and, and subbies in the last little while. You know, yes, certain people are making a, a huge amount of money at the moment, but getting back to the original point, there was a time where we didn't really know what was going to happen. So we had builders securing work in advance just to make sure that they had a pipeline of work and they might've been lowering their margins just for that security. Then construction costs go through the roof and they're locked into these fixed term contracts. And we've seen a number of people go into liquidation uh, because of that, you know, the short term sort of renovation style um, companies would be a bit more cauterized from that. But if you think about it as, as well, you know, where people thought there might be a 30% drop in house prices in Sydney, there's been, you know, a huge run. So people can be sitting on quite a lot of equity and renovating their properties. And we do see that there is uh, almost double the amount spent post-purchase on renovations for properties where the people have occupied it. And we're, we're seeing higher levels of occupation in New South Wales um, pre um, prior to becoming an investment property there than we are in Queensland. So I think that might factor into it as well. Yeah, it's an interesting observation. And and while we're looking at, you know, um, you know what's happening in different states, another um, great thing that's come from your study in terms of a, a trend that is emerging is that investors are actually starting to buy further away from where they actually live. Um, yeah. So the distance between where they might reside as in their primary residence or in a rental property and where they're actually investing is actually increasing. Mm, yeah. Can you help I, us understand yeah. a bit more about that? I love this one. Uh, this wasn't part of our original uh, scope for the data that we've been publishing for the last seven years, but it popped up uh, last year and we've looked at it as a comparison. So we looked at uh, a thousand residential purchases um, to January 2020 and we compare the results um, to the same sample, which was ending sort of November uh, 2021. So we've really got kind of a pre- uh, and a mid-pandemic data set here. And what we found was that the average distance people buy uh, from where they live went from 294 kilometres to 559. So that's that's a huge jump. And what we were really wanting to look at is, you know, those, those, those cliches about, you know, investors are unsophisticated because they always buy around the corner from where they live. Um, and certainly some people do, but but even at 294, it showed that people were willing to purchase interstate or at least places that they feasibly wouldn't be inspecting themselves. And now at 559Ks, it shows that people are, uh, are much more likely to look at the whole of Australia for investment opportunities, which I think is a positive thing. Absolutely. And you've got um, some further data here where the percentage of people investing greater than 1,000 kilometres away from home more than doubled um, mm. during that period. So, you know, you're right. And, and perhaps that's come with the availability of data and the accessibility of, of buyers agents for, for others to assist, but also the way we shop for real estate um, platforms where we may be able to you know, access listings um, in different locations around Australia, even without the, the assistance of a buyer's agent. We've become a lot more um, digitised, I guess you could say, the internet and the the um, the world of the 
you know, availability of, of property for purchase has just really exploded in recent years. And, and that potentially aligns with um, that investor confidence, being able to make a decision about a property by relying on information provided digitally as opposed to having to physically be in that location. Yeah, and a strategic decision based on better metrics, you know, like what are the employment drivers, what is the, the what are the days on market and the vacancy rates rather than uh, I want to buy in this suburb because, you know, I've been driving past it and it looks really neat and they do great coffee on Smart Street and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Again, this is another interesting one for me because during that sort of mid-pandemic sample, you, you sort of couldn't go and inspect properties. So when we look at next year's data, will that decrease? Uh Chances are it might, but I just think that people are looking further and further away from um, their local area because of all those reasons that you pointed to, the availability of data and buyer's agents that you can engage across the country that are going to be way better than uh, at purchasing property in that location than you would be even in your own. Mm. Yes, and I think that that's, that's the exact reason why services like ours exist, to be able to assist those that are interstate that want not only the access to the data, but the local knowledge, um, you know, that comes with understanding areas outside of the data. But I always like to see um, that, you know, investors are becoming more confident, as you mentioned, to invest in other areas and consider other areas that might not just be, you know, in the same neighbourhood as where they live. Um, and I think that that's definitely coming through in the data. And I don't want to show out my age, Mike, but... It- it, it obviously is the change of the times because the days of hopping in, looking at the newspaper on a Saturday and hopping in the car with a real estate agent <laughs> and driving around town, uh, they're well and truly gone. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm with you there on that one, Scott. I mean, I had a, a, a glorious 10-month career in real estate. Obviously, I was so successful that um, I just had to leave. <laughs> uh, make people embarrassed but I've still got a clipping somewhere of of my baby face in a newspaper as you know come and chat to Mike and look at these properties uh yeah things are very very different now yeah one more um trend that I'd just like to comment on before we wrap we wrap it up Mike and that is um a trend that's emerging in Queensland that is a little different to the likes of Victoria and and that's a, there's been a drop, a significant drop in, in fact, 30.9% in the average number of units per unit development mm. um, that the investors are buying into in Queensland. So in Victoria, however, and in fact, the, the nationwide um, average, there's actually been an increase in the number of units per development. So perhaps you know, that aligns with the fact that we had a peak oversupply in the unit market off the back of our change in the city plan, um, well, that's that's the case here in southeast Queensland or in Brisbane, where we had a huge volume of units all hit the market all at the same time around 2016. So we had an oversupply, and since then, you know, the, the number of available unit developments has been dropping, and therefore the number of opportunities for investors has been more limited. But can you um, talk to that sort of data a little bit and help listeners understand why we're seeing differences emerge in different uh, states in that regard? Yeah, it's it's a. I've, I mean, every time you bring up a new data point, I go, it's so interesting, and I have to realise that this is our data, and that just kind of sounds arrogant. But any time I look at data, like I, I find it, I just find the whole world curious, right? Where yeah. no matter where it comes from, but when we talk about the you know the number of units within a development, I I used to do um, some presentations where I talked about you know where it peaked to 
around about 90 units in a development and then it dropped off and that sort of coincided with you know the opal towers mascot towers which were big sydney stories where people were being evicted on christmas uh christmas mm. eve and boxing day because of structural defects and those sorts of things i think that made a difference to the kind of investment zeitgeist across australia because people were re- really empathizing with those positions and and worrying about it so when you think about the oversupply of of unit apartments i used to kind of point to places like um south melbourne and port melbourne and places like that but there was versions of it in queensland and sydney as well you know in uh, in, in in places like the um the university districts in Sydney, um, what would it be, Macquarie Park. But there was, you know, there was a huge oversupply of apartments in Brisbane as well. And that lasted for a bit of time. And there was enough press on people having negative equity or going to settle on something off the plan and the bank vowels not stacking up. So there's been a, a lot of negative stories about investments as potential investments. And I think not only are the consumers understanding that, but the developers are understanding that as well, is that that old one-bedroom shoebox is just not going to cut it anymore. We need to think a bit more creatively about the spaces that we're, we're developing. And those bigger units that are a little bit more expensive, they're more boutique and they're smaller blocks, people are willing to pay a premium for it. And I think, you know, I think we're all better off with those types of developments. 100%. So that's definitely... Um you know, a good analysis as to why we might see that that happening. Um, you know, we've got fewer apartments being built, but the apartments that are being built are actually a better quality, appealing more to the owner-occupier, so larger floor plans, etc. And even if investors are buying them, as the data suggests at the average purchase price for a Queensland unit being, you know, close to $900,000, they're willing to pay for a better quality product. And, um, and that's reflected across you know, not only a drop in the average number of units, but an increase in the, the average unit price. But I think it's also that, as you said, Mike, the, the bigger units, um, lifestyle as well, you know, where they build these units that are slightly bigger, they've gone from, the, as you said, the one bedroom to the two or three bedroom units, they're near areas that um, there's the coffee shops, there's the restaurants, and there is that lifestyle, and, and it's low maintenance. People don't want to have to, some, a lot of people nowadays, they don't want to have to go and mow the lawn on the weekends. They, they want to go and have coffee and relax and, and enjoy that lifestyle as well. Yeah, absolutely right. That's that's the one advantage of those big super complexes, right, is that you can walk downstairs and you're in the middle of the action. And if there are even houses available in those locations, they're ridiculously unaffordable. So, yeah, you can kind of do that. And people aren't interested in you know, mowing the lawn anymore. I bought one of those push mowers myself. I've only got a little, <laughs> little square that I do and then I pay someone to come and do the rest of it because we're on a, a goat track. Um, <laughs> you know, that has been fun for a novelty. Now it needs sharpening and I'm just sort of getting over it because we're all busy, right? We've got stuff going on. Yeah. Okay, I can tell you that I've got some artificial grass. Oh, if you really <laughs> and three boys that do the mowing for us if, if it needs to be done otherwise. One more thing that I do want to very briefly think, bring up because I'm going to also watch this in the next data set that comes out and that is the uh, percentage of property investors in Queensland that are buying houses. Um, we're at 69.4%, buying units 11.38% and townhouses 12.93%. Um, Now, in the Brisbane local government area, and again, this is data not released, but data that you've shared with us, 
the percentage of investors buying houses is 69.4%, buying units 15.7% and townhouses 14.4%. I am going to watch with um, a high degree of interest to see if the percentages change with the next data set because as the housing market in Brisbane has grown you know, in excess of 30% at the median value over the last 12 months, we haven't seen that same level of growth in units and townhouses. So um, I'm going to be really interested to see if we see a shift in the demand for product types because we are already seeing that on the ground. And if we see that coming through in your data, um, I think that will confirm that, you know, people are being priced out of um, affordable housing and then they're looking to make a compromise on product type to stay in the more desirable locations. So again, really useful information that you're collecting there and something that I can't wait for you to share with us um, when your next data release comes out. So please keep us in mind when that becomes available and we'll get you back on the podcast again to talk more about that. That's good. I'm glad you're looking forward to it because I probably wouldn't have been able to help myself anyway. So yes, <laughs> of course. I, I mean, the having chats like uh, like these with with you guys, you know, it it it, it validates the the work that goes into putting this together. We really enjoy it. We love getting the feedback from people on the ground to say, oh, that's a surprise, or yeah, I can see that happening. So yeah, we, we think it's got a value, and, we, and we're going to keep doing it. I look, Mike. I I, I totally agree. Melinda loves this. As I said at the start, you data nerds really love this. I, I like I pick parts out of it as well. So for me, who I'm not data driven um, that much, and I'm not heavily involved in it, but there are parts in this that I can pick out myself and go, "Wow, that's that's actually really interesting," and to see different sort of trends and how things work. So, look um, for someone like myself, I also get a lot out of it. Um, not as much as probably you, and Melinda, but. <laughs> I, I do enjoy it. So, hey, um, Mike, thanks, thanks for chatting today. Um, obviously, uh, your your main business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. Um, if people are out there listening and they they need to get hold of that service, what's the best way to get in contact? Yeah, mcgqs.com.au is the website, and you can uh, search for Mike Mortlock on uh, Facebook or LinkedIn. And uh, I'm pretty hard to to unsee once you friend me. I've got all sorts of stuff. <laughs> well, I do hope anyone that needs a depreciation schedule, if you've recently purchased an investment property and you don't know whether you've got depreciation benefits, reach out to Mike and his team at MCG Quantity Surveying. They'd be happy to um, look at your asset to determine whether it's worth proceeding to to get that report completed. And I, I think just on that, if you don't know, just ask. Um, some people do say to that, most people say to us, oh, should I get in touch? We usually say, look, there's no harm in asking. So just reach out, ask that question, um, and these guys will help out for sure. So um, look, I will... Um, Thanks again, Mike, for, for having a chat. I'll let Melinda wrap it up and, and close things off with you. Um, but um, until next time, thanks very much for listening, everyone, and bye for now. Thank you so much for your time today, Mike. Your data dump's been amazing, and I've loved chatting to you about your study and the results that um, it's delivering for, for investors all over Australia. Thanks for having me. It's uh, always a pleasure. Fabulous. Well, we look forward to the next chat and um, taking a, another deep dive into the data once we've got um, more, more analysis um, tracking those long-term trends. But in the meantime, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review and tell your friends and family about this podcast so more people can learn um, information that is specific to um, Brisbane property. Uh, thank you so much for your time again, and we look forward to speaking with you again next week. Bye for now. 
Thanks for tuning in today. Please remember everything we have spoken about on this podcast is general in nature and we always recommend that you obtain independent advice in relation to your specific circumstances. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes and of course, tell your friends about us. If you would like to get in contact, please visit www.brisbanepropertypodcast.com.au or email us at info at brisbanepropertypodcast.com.au. Feel free to send in any questions and we will try to answer them in future episodes.